mistakes don't disqualify us um, from being God's children because we have a Savior and we can be redeemed. And that's why it's so important to understand Jesus and redemption. And so today we're going to ask this question as we look at Hebrews 9, what does it mean to be redeemed? Pretty simple, straightforward question, but that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, what does it mean to be redeemed? Um, to some, talking about redemption can seem offensive because, I, I don't know if you know this, but telling people that they're sinners who need to repent today is not a popular message. Okay? Nobody really likes that, okay? Um, people don't like to stand before a guy standing on the street corner with the repent sign. Um, but from what I've seen, most people today don't think of themselves as needing today, most people I talk to think of themselves as good people, at least in the conversations that I'm having. Those who aren't Christians believe that they are good. Like, evil is definitely not something that they use, a word they use to describe themselves. And so to talk about redemption today is actually a really tough message for our time and our place, because we live in a world that's a lot like how the book of Judges describes. We live in a world where people are right in their all live right in our own eyes. We don't need anyone. We don't even need God to tell me what's right. I know for myself what's right. And so here's the reality. Here's my first point in this, is that redemption is offensive because in admitting we need it, we must first admit that we are inescapably lost, that we are flawed people, that we make mistakes, that even if we think we're good, they they, we don't measure up to the standard that God has set for us. And that's what God is trying to tell us through his word, the revelation of God in the Bible. That outside of an uh, of a intervention of God, that we are inescapably flawed. I think today we probably have an easier time seeing that in other people than we do ourselves, right? Because there's a lot going on in our world today. Like if you watch the news, if you're if you're taking anything in, it just can seem like the world is getting worse by the day, right? We have the crisis in Afghanistan, uh, we've got growing crime in our state, shootings, arsons happening more and more, we've got so many people upset about how we're handling COVID, we've got so much division, so much strife, um, so much going on, it's easy for us to point the finger out. Us to point the finger at Jesus. Look at ourselves. Are we too busy pointing the finger out at others and not taking the time to actually point the finger in and say, well, how am I broken? How am I broken? Are we willing to admit that we need Jesus? That we need to be redeemed? Or are we distancing ourselves from those areas of our lives that still need God's healing, still need God's work? Because if we distance ourselves from our, the problems that we create, what we become is proud. What we become is proud. When we say we're good apart from God, the biblical word for that is self-righteousness. I say that I'm good. I declare that I'm good. I'm good in my own eyes. And I just remember a warning given by a pastor that I deeply respect who said, your sin doesn't send you to hell, but your self-righteousness does. Claiming that you're good on your own, that you don't 
passage of scripture. It almost reads like a legal document, so don't snooze uh, when we read this. But it, it goes through the Old Testament system of priests and sacrifices, and it all centers around this one day of atonement they would have each year, where a priest would come and give a sacrifice on behalf of himself first to purify himself, and then give a sacrifice on behalf of the people for their intentional sins and their unintentional sins. So there was this covering by the blood of animals. But what Hebrews 9 tells us is that even that, back then, prior to Christ coming, that really didn't fix anything. All that could do would be to point forward um, to a coming Savior who could actually clean us up. And so we're going to look at God's word today. Verse um, let's see, verse 6 of chapter 9 says this. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. So in talking about uh, the Day of Atonement and sacrifices, it says this. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but for once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So you can see that this like process, this passage, it all points forward. It's like this doesn't actually solve the problem. It just kind of punts it to a future date where everything will be restored. And um, it's all just a ritual. And it's a pretty gross ritual, bringing bulls and goats and, and, and cutting them in half on this altar and burning them. You can imagine the If you're standing there and, and this is happening for your sin, it doesn't actually clean your conscience. It actually gives like, oh man, my, my sin's pretty bad, huh? Uh, to watch an animal die on behalf of your sin, it actually doesn't make you feel less guilty. It probably makes you feel your guilt even more. And that would happen on the Day of Atonement. Um, but it's interesting because Hebrews 9 talks about this word, says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And we're going to talk about conscience a little later, but even in doing these sacrifices, this ritual, it didn't actually like make people feel free. They're actually still weighed down by their conscience, by their guilt. They actually didn't experience freedom through the sacrifice. So getting back to verse 11, it points forward to a future hope. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
ourselves without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's a lot of imagery there. I know that's a lot of imagery. But what this is saying is that Christ is way better than all of those doctrines. That his uh, the, the ones that could actually do it, that could actually redeem us, that it could actually take care of us. And it calls Christ the high priest of the good things that have come. Before it was bad news, now Christ is good news. The old sacrifices were a reminder of how bad you were. Christ can redeem you and make you good. The good things that have come, and they only come through his blood. And so what we need to take away from that is that Christ's blood is enough for us. It's enough for us to cover us and to secure eternal redemption. And then I want to hang out here to clean our conscience. To clean our conscience. It's enough to clean our conscience. It says, this last line says that the blood of Christ can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to ask you, how valuable is it to you to have a clean conscience? able to sleep at night, right? To be able to be free from that guilt. To, to, to not wonder, am I making mistake after mistake, but just knowing, like, okay, God's got me in all things. I just need to follow Him. And to live inside a relationship with God fully free. Like, having a clean conscience is really important. And I think it's really important that we talk about what our conscience is actually clean from. Because it says that it cleans us from dead works. It cleans us from dead works, and then it cleans us for something. It cleans us for serving the living God. So let's talk about dead works. What does it mean by dead works? There's sort of an allusion back to all the ritual that happens in the Old Testament, but what does it mean that that the blood of Jesus actually cleanses our conscience from dead works. What are dead works? Well, dead works are the things that we do to ease our conscience, right? But the fact is we all have like a guilty conscience, and so if we do any good to kind of like ease our conscience and, and make us think that we're good, then that is called a dead work in Scripture. It's when we work really, really hard to be good. I was talking to somebody this week who said he didn't really need God. He just needed to be a kind person. Like, I just, I just need, I think we all just need to be kind people. And I, I kind of see, like, you know, I, I, I get the merit of being kind, but he, he thinks he can be good outside of Christ, outside of spiritual intervention. Dead works means that we're trying to do good things from a dead heart trying to do good things from a dead heart. Redemption means laying down our life so that we get to experience something completely new, which is Christ in us. Christ in us. That is freedom when, when Christ's presence actually dwells in us and moves us. And so God's redemption gives you the ability to serve him because you actually have Christ in you, his spirit in you, freeing you from that guilty conscience. Right? That, that, that conscience that's always seared and always questioning. And, and later in 
say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we all need, we all need our consciences uh, redeemed. And faith is our part of it. Anything we do outside of faith is self-righteousness. Anything we try to do to prove ourselves, prove our worth, prove our goodness, uh, just for ourselves, that's self-righteousness. We actually need Christ to set us free from our slavery to that. Like, we can become enslaved to self-righteousness, to the pursuit of creating our own goodness. And we actually need Christ to set us free from that so we can actually do things with a clean conscience. Not selfishly, not for ourselves. A redeemed person can change the world because Christ is in them, and ultimately Christ is more powerful and more motivating than, than just being good in and of ourselves. Christ removes our drive to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to prove ourselves to God because Christ is, as Dakota said and we read, he said, uh, Christ is appealing to us, uh, appealing to God for us. Like redemption is already. When I first really took my faith seriously, when I when I got to college, um, it was a really exciting time, and God was doing a lot of things in my heart. But I had one thing wrong. I felt like I was trying to do everything for God, and I was beating myself up every time I missed an opportunity to share Christ with someone, or I did anything wrong. I just beat myself up, beat myself up, beat myself up. Because I was still stuck in this idea that I needed to prove my worthiness to God. And, and I wasn't living out the grace that I was talking about. I wasn't actually living in freedom and grace. I was still living in works. I was maybe trying to, to talk about grace, but still from a, a standpoint of works in my heart, trying to prove my own worth to God and to others. And that is incredibly frightening to be in that place where you constantly have to prove yourself um, to God and to others. And redemption is Jesus freeing you from that. And Christ in you is going to be way more effective than you for Christ. Christ in you is going to be way more effective than just you, out of your own strength, uh, serving Christ. Because what Christ does is he actually reforms your character to be more like Jesus. He actually changes changes who you are to be more like Jesus. And then, when you come into situations where he can use you, he does. I keep coming back to this phrase in Acts where the apostles just show up in a situation and it says, open their mouths. They didn't come rehearse, they didn't prep a speech, they didn't, they didn't work super hard. All they did was open their mouths. Like, if you can walk close in the Spirit, all you'll have to do is come into a situation that needs you and open your mouth. I want to keep going here in Hebrews, um, Hebrews uh, 9.15. So it says this in verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first...
when every covenant of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, uh, driving this importance of the blood of Jesus, how important the blood of Jesus is, because that's what purifies us. That's what makes us clean. That's what covers us, is the blood of Jesus. And I know this passage is really long, and it, it is like reading a legal document. They even use the word will in like, there's the word will, and it reminded me, like, I, I didn't do a will for years just because it was so boring, right? Like, it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with insurance, or, because it's, it's boring, right? But it is critical, right? Legal documents are binding and, and like, life-transforming, so it's actually critical that we read them, as boring as they might be, and understand what they're saying. And so it uses this word will here, like Jesus' legal will for you, uh, and, and this is what his death accomplished, was redemption. And so we have this legal transaction that happens at the cross where, where death and sin and hell no longer have any hold on you, but you're actually released from that by the blood of Jesus, that his blood was enough to deal with all of those mistakes, all of those regrets, all of that shame of that shame. And, and if we're not living in that, then we're missing part of the text. That we're free. And also, and maybe most importantly, what this does is it allows us to live in the presence of God. We were singing this earlier, how we want Christ in us and around us, and, and we can experience the presence of God. Uh, if you think about the old covenant, that God's presence was strictly housed in, in, a, in a temple, and, and even in the temple, it's in this holy place, and even in that place, only one priest who gets selected can go behind the curtain once a year to offer these sacrifices, and they tie a rope to his ankle, because if he dies back there, they can pull him out, uh, which, man, that's a, an honor and, and a curse, almost, right? Um, but, but that's all changed, and that's what this like legal description is telling you, is like, that's all changed. Like God's presence, we can now invite God's presence anywhere. And not just here in the church building. We can in invite it outside after for veggies, you know, and, and hot dogs. It goes with us because who's the temple now? We are. The temple doesn't exist in buildings. It's actually, it's actually in us. We are a temple of God. We house the spirit of God. And that is good news. That is good news news. And I think often we struggle in our Christian life because we forget that. We forget that we're a temple of God, that God's presence lives in us. We forget who we are and what we have. And so if, if you're struggling with doubt, just remember who you, what you have in Christ. Remember the, the, the legal transaction that happened here, what is legally yours in Christ, and namely his presence working in you and through you. We're going to just look at verse 23. It continues, and it says, 
Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, uh, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for when he would have to for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is just as as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So it's a lot of words, but in that, Christ is enough. His blood is enough for past and present and future. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And when he's coming back, he's not coming back as a Savior, but as a Lord and Judge. And so as you read this, you might be thinking, man, like this is this is really intense. And I, I thought as I was reading this in the in the first part, it talks about the heavenly things being purified. And it made me think about um, so my dad's here today. Right. Right over here. Dad, raise your hand. OK. Yeah, that's. His name's Paul Mitchell. Um, you, you can talk to him. Um, but, yeah. Um, but it reminded me of when I was a little kid. And, and so so uh, my dad worked in the computer industry back in the 80s when, like, war games was going on. And, like, you know, when, when only nerds uh, worked with computers back in the 80s. And... Uh, but I remember he'd take me to his store in, in the warehouse, and, and it was, like, amazing to me as, like, a five-year-old, six-year-old, like, all the components and parts and, and, and cords and, and, and all of that. But it was way over my head, right? Like, I had no idea what I was seeing. And, and a lot of things, that's, like, re- reading this passage, it's like we get this picture of something amazing, but, like, we have trouble in our minds making sense of it, right? wow, this is amazing, but this is, a, this is a conversation that's happening in heaven between God and, and God the Father and God the Son. And guess what? We're not going to fully compute what's going on in that, uh, in that situation. Um, but what we, what we do know is this, is that Jesus died at one time for all humanity throughout history, and that there is no more need for a sacrifice. So now we have this choice of redemption or judgment. It says after the death, uh, after Jesus' death comes judgment, uh, where we can be covered by the blood of Jesus or not. And for me and for you, the time is now to decide before redemption comes repentance. Before redemption comes repentance, they go together. Someone told me this week that this is actually the most introspective time in our nation's history because we have so much time, we've had so much time to ourselves over quarantine, right? People are introspective today. And that might be a good thing because I think God might be slowing some of us down to to realize how
how much we need it. To realize our need for God. Are we willing to pause long enough to wrestle with our guilt and our shame and our sin? Because it's only through that that we get to live a redeemed life. So what I wanted to end today as I was thinking about, well, what is this picture of redemption that Jesus offers? And I thought about about John 8, and I thought about the woman who was caught in adultery and brought out to be stoned in, in front of a, a bunch of people, and I just thought about the weight of the, the shame and the guilt and the fear, all three, that existed in that moment, and then I thought about Jesus' response to her, because what he did is he shut that thing down, and he said, whoever is without sin cast the first authority, right? He's the one who didn't sin. He's the holy one, but he's the one who shut that down. And I just wanted to read as we close uh, John 8, 10, and 11. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. That line is a picture of Jesus does not condemn you. Go and live a life of redemption. Go and sin no more. And you go and you change in the Spirit of God that Jesus meets you in the most vulnerable place in the, in, in, where you're experiencing the most shame, the most guilt, the most fear, and he doesn't condemn you. Instead, he picks you up and tells you to go on and sin no more. And I want you to know that's a picture of all of us picture of all of us in Jesus, that, that we, we have, we can't hide anything before God, that he knows our guilt and our shame, and when, when, we real, when we know that he knows, we might expect wrath, but instead Jesus meets us in grace. Jesus meets us and releases us and encourages us. And so our job is to go and live a and restored life. Let's pray.